Well, what I want to be talking to you today about, uh, and I just kind of prayed it in, uh, is within this story, I think that there are four elements that, that give us instruction as a church of what God wants for us as a church, the necessity of being a community that recognizes the need for a concern for others, that recognizes a need for expectancy, that recognizes a need for yieldedness, and ultimately recognizes a need for a center, a Christ-centeredness. And that's what we're going to see in this story. What we need to remember is that this story of Peter and John entering into the temple to pray on the ninth hour uh, is a story uh, that follows on the heels of the birth of the church. And you remember last week we looked at, at some of the facets, some of the characteristics of the church, and found it to be inspiring of, of how God actually utilized this church. The union with Christ is something that's significant, and what the people saw in the, in the world at that time was a community of people that were experiencing communion with Christ. They literally became the body, the visible representation of an invisible God. And through that representation, it says that God added to their numbers daily. Now, God's sovereign saving of the, of the lost was accomplished through the very real people that were following him. We need to understand that the church continues to be and will continue to be until the return of Christ, the primary means by which God makes his kingdom known on earth as it is in heaven, that we are to be the physical body manifestation of the invisible God. And so when we see Peter offer healing to a man who is lame at the gate. He looks at him and says, silver and gold I do not have, but this thing I have, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk, and extends his hand to him. We need to remember that this is not the works of the disciples, but it's the continuing work of Jesus through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we are reading this story, I want us to keep in context that the church has been born. But what is fascinating is that these early believers, it says in verse 1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Uh, And here, the ninth hour is significant. Uh, If you uh, know, the ninth hour is 3 o'clock, and in Jewish tradition, that that was a time when you went to pray. It was the afternoon prayers. But here's the power. Why are they still continuing to practice uh, the Jewish faith now that they are followers of Jesus? Remember what Jesus said. I think this is important for us to remember. He said, I did not come to destroy or abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. And yes, by the time we have the book of Hebrews uh, and through the persecution, Christians no longer gathered in in the temple uh, as openly, but gathered in their their homes. And even by by later as revelation progressed and and an understanding of this new standing in Christ progressed, they, they came to the realization that they themselves were the temple of God. It's one of the reasons that Christians were viewed with such skepticism by the Roman Empire is because all religious people practice their religion in temples through sacrifices. And if a, if a first century Roman was to ask a Christian, where's your temple? They would say, we are the, the temple of God. Jesus himself is the temple. Where's your high priest? Jesus is our high priest. Where's your sacrifice? Jesus is the sacrifice once and for all. And so they were viewed with skepticism, almost like they were like the first atheist or something. Uh, so, but at this point, early in the Revelation, this is a Jewish community for the most part, and they're still holding true 
to the Jewish faith, but the Jewish faith now has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So for the Jews that have gathered to pray at three o'clock, uh, it means one thing, uh, being, uh, being faithful to the commands of, of Yahweh, but for Peter and for John and for the rest of the Christian community, it now is filled out with much more robust meaning because remember it says, all the scriptures were shadows of the substance which is found in the person of Jesus. And what happened um, at the ninth hour, at three o'clock when Jesus was on the cross? He cried out what? We just sang it. It is finished. And so I think that there is great significance in their prayer. For them, the prayer, even, the prayer time is even more significant because it's, in, it's been filled with the presence of Christ. Its meaning is wrapped up in the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And so there's a beautiful reality here that I just wanted to point out. But that's not where we're going to spend the majority of our time because it says here, and a man, lame from birth, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now, I just want you to know, this is the temple gate in Jerusalem, uh, and this man, we're told, has been laid here, and, and it sounds like he's been laid there for years. And that tells us something significant, and something that we have to take into consideration, which is the problem of God's timing. Because if he was truly laying at the temple gate day after day, uh, who would have seen him? Anyone? Starts with a J. <laughs> You're like... John, uh, no, Jesus, Jesus would have seen him. And it immediately rises, raises the question, why didn't Jesus heal him? And I think this speaks to a, ten, a tendency and a temptation that we have within the church is that God's timing is not our timing. And that Jesus saw this man, but chose not to heal him, but actually Jesus has chosen to heal him, and he's about to do it now, but through through Peter. Uh, and I think that this is why it's so important that when we read the book of Acts that we remember that this is the continued work of Christ. Christ in his own time is now, he is going to bring healing and it's going to be significant because it's going to be a continued witness to the, to the authenticity because all miracles are meant to authenticate the truth of the gospel. We have to understand that. And that actually within this miracle, I think it's been stated wisely that all miracles are in some sense a parable because physical healing is about to happen to this man who has been lame from birth. But physical healing is not the ultimate healing that occurs, nor is it the final healing because no matter how many times you may be healed miraculously, the still the death rate continues to be one per person. So we know that ultimately physical healing is not the end all, for the Christian faith. And there are many churches that put an overemphasis upon God's healing. Does God still heal today? Yes, he does. And I'm gonna, I'll share a story of healing in a, in a little bit. But I think that the importance is the parable that's, that we have before us is here we have a man who can't even get into the presence of God. He can't even get into the temple. He is blinded to the reality of what is before him. He is lost. He is lame. He cannot walk to God. And the parable significance of that is that there is a spiritual reality that comes to the healing because Jesus himself said that you might know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. I say to you, rise up and walk. And I think that the significance is he's saying the greater miracle is not the physical healing, but the greatest miracle is the restoration of right relationship between God and man. And I think that we need to remember that because God does heal, but he doesn't always heal. 
so here we have this beautiful picture, this man who can't get into the temple to worship, who is lost, who is broken, who is broke, and he's in real need. And Jesus did not miss him when he walked by him in the past, but is actually now through Peter going to show that he, he cared and was aware all along. But that, that this healing and this salvation reality was meant to be a greater testimony to authenticate the authority and the reality of the gospel. So look what happens here. It says, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So here is a beautiful beginning point. There are four needs that I see in this. And the first need is the need for a concern for others. What makes Christianity believable, what makes Christianity attractive, is not our ability to articulate arguments, first of all. It's not our ability to live holy, pure lives, secondly. But it is primarily our ability to become conduits by which God utilizes us as broken bread and poured out wine for the good of others. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Does holiness matter? Absolutely. In fact, holy, holy vessels, and that is those who lived under the authority of Jesus where he is their Lord. The, the point is, is that what makes Christians uh, attractive to those outside of the world, outside of the church, is when those outside of the church actually believe that we love one another and that we love them. Now, I want to just share an example because this man is, a, is essentially a homeless man who spends all day in front of the temple begging uh, that he might receive what is necessary to survive. And we live in a city that is filled with homelessness, it's a major reality. Uh, look at the, the, the tent cities that have risen up over the last couple of years and all the controversy around that. Uh, we are partnered with, uh, with Portland Rescue Mission. Uh, so we've, we've been exposed to this reality. But here's the problem is that we see so much homelessness, so much begging. I mean, all you have to do is just walk out here to this road. And remember how all the tents used to be along, along this street? This was a major camping spot. Uh, but how callous we become uh, to homelessness. I think about areas where I avoid walking because I don't want to be confronted with a dirty tent camp uh, and how frustrated that I live in a beautiful city that's been taken over. And I realized that my heart, when I was studying this passage, it was deeply convicting uh, because when we become callous, what we really are doing is dehumanizing. And I think that in order for the gospel to be effective, we actually have to look at people in a way that they actually feel like we care about them, that they actually are somebody. There's a man actually um, uh, right over by our, our house uh, that's always begging every day for years. Um, he's been there at the new seasons on division. Um, and this guy is interesting because he's really, he's super friendly and really outgoing. And a lot of people know him by name. Uh, and he just sits there with a cardboard sign and, and he doesn't even really ask. He just waits for people to give him whatever. And, but I was listening to him the other day and he was like in this full-blown conversation with, with this woman that was coming out of the store about some current event. And he was like absolutely 
articulate in his ability to engage in political issues. Like, I don't, he spends some of his money on like the New York Times or something. And it was just, I'm like only in Portland. You're like, this guy is probably a professor for all I know. Uh, and, uh, but I, I found myself, what's the thing that we do when we're uncomfortable? Like if you drive up to an exit on, I always think of the, where there's people always um, begging at the, at the exit of, on Alberta um, off of I-5 and they have their car and they walk along and what's the thing that we do? What do we not look into? Their eyes. Why do we not look into their eyes? Because we don't want to be confronted with their problems. We don't want to be confronted with their pain. Uh, and we even come up with all sorts of excuses. I, I know I've come up with multiple. I've been told, like, never give to someone begging on a corner. They're, they're scam artists. They're making, they can get meals anywhere at any time. There's a million places that serve hot meals in Portland. You can be well-fed all day long here. There isn't enough shelter. That's a reality. But even so, even if I don't want to give them money because they look like they're going to use it on drugs and alcohol, that's another excuse I have. Well, I'm not going to give them anything. But I have found that I don't even give them the dignity of a, of a look, of a hello. If I see them, I take a quick stare and then I look away that we might not catch eye contact because I don't want to be confronted with their need. And that's the reality that I think we are faced with today. I just would ask you right now, are you callous toward those who are in need? Because if we're callous toward those who are blatantly in need, how much more callous are we to those who are, are around us that, that the needs may not be as prevalent? Because if we have begun to train ourselves to look away, how long before we just look away from one another as well? where we lack discernment and the ability to truly meet people where they're at. Do you know how many times I've been told by people over the years, and I'm very defensive about our church, but when people say, I came in for months and nobody ever said hi to me, and my, my first question is I want to defend all of you and say, well, you probably closed yourself off to hello, and that very well may be true. There's plenty of people that have come through these doors that are hard to love. Hello, thank you, amen. Uh, but the, the reality is, is that the still, the responsibility, what is going to compel people to put their faith in what we believe if they don't even think that we like each other or like them? Nothing. Nothing. The gospel is meant to bring a transformation of the heart, that the love that God requires of us is a supernatural love that can only come from him as a gift. But we need to be a people that actually uh, build into, pour into, uh, begin to... To, to grow a concern for others, to live with an awareness, to actually look into people's eyes. Now, I, when I say look into their eyes, I'm using that as a, a little bit as a metaphor of actually engaging with people, meeting them where they're at, being concerned about them. I'm not just talking about developing a habit of staring, um, because I have that habit, and my wife always accuses my, my daughter and I like when people come into a restaurant, Darcy will be talking to me and both Hattie and I will just be like. <laughs> and, she's, and she always accuses me that I'm, not even ob that I'm not even trying to hide the fact that I'm staring at people. But I just want to say, Darcy, it's because I care. <laughs> it's because I care deeply about what they're wearing. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm talking about a genuine desire to meet people in their brokenness. And I think part of that, even if we don't have, as Peter said, I don't have silver and gold to give, we can still give people connection. We can still make them feel loved, and we can do it in the power of the Spirit. Because notice what happens. 
It says, it says here, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and they said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have to give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, I just want to say one final word in regards to a need for a concern for others is one thing that is absolutely clear is that Jesus never did a miracle for anyone without first drawing their attention to himself. And he would draw their attention to himself to build within them an expectancy. Uh, and his deep concern and love for others is always reflected in stories. Even when, even when he had a hard word to speak to someone, one of my favorite stories is the story of the young rich ruler. You remember Jesus, uh, he, he says, why do you call me good? And, and he says, good, good teacher, uh, tell me what I must do to enter into eternal life. And he says, why do you call me good? And there's no one who's good but God. But, but if you press, okay, this is what you need to do. Keep these commandments. And he says, I've kept all of those from my youth. And Jesus was basically leading him down a path to help him see his own brokenness, his own need. And I love one of the most powerful statements. It's a statement that was incredibly hard. It crushed this man, but it came out of Jesus's deep concern for him. And it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, this one thing you lack. We think of Jesus being this, just this hard word, but we, for, we miss the, the nuance. He looked at the young man and he loved him. And he said, this one thing you lack, go sell everything you have, give the, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come pick up your cross and follow me. He challenges the man at the, at the, at the center of his being. He's trying to bring out of him uh, an expectancy and a need. And I think that this is exactly what Peter and John are doing. So here's the next need that we have as a church. It's not just a need for a concern for others, but we also need, a, we also need to, to live with expectancy. And this expectancy is on both sides. Their attention given to this man drew out of him an expectancy that he was going to receive something. But at the same time, what does Peter say? I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter has an expectancy that God is going to show up, that Jesus Christ is going to heal this man. And that expectation is so confident uh, that it actually leads to the third need, which is the need of yieldedness. But that expectation is so confident that he's able to speak prophetically over this man. He becomes a conduit. He not only cares about this individual because he has been so transformed, he cares because God cared for him. Peter's experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. No man knew the forgiveness of Christ like Peter did because Peter denied Christ. Peter's already been utilized to preach powerfully to 3,000, but it doesn't change the fact that he still needs to care for the one. He doesn't miss that point. He's not fallen into the trappings of being a celebrity. He simply recognizes that whatever opportunity comes before him, there is an expectancy that God's going to show up in a unique way. And I think that this is something that is desperately needed in the church today, is that we come to church. I, we went through a season of Door of Hope where there was incredibly fast growth. It was early on. It was about year three, right before I hired Tim Mackey. And, and we were growing so fast, and, there was, and it was, we just had a single service, and it was packed. 
but it felt wrong. I just remember it felt wrong because it didn't feel like people were coming with an expectancy. It felt like they were coming with a cynicism, basically coming as voyeurs, like they heard about the church and like classic Portland attitude. Hey, there's an exciting new church. You should check it out. And it's, people seem to be really, and it was almost like the attitude of those who came and visited is like, we'll see. We'll see about that. And I just remember that it was like the room was totally full, and it, it, I felt like this incredible pressure. There was like a, the wrong spirit in the room, and it was, this, it was this, we're here, now entertain us. And I just remember being so uncomfortable that I, I basically, I knew it was wrong. And so I, I did something not normative, and I basically shared the pillars, and I just said, hey, if this isn't what you're about, I want to ask you to not come back. And we lost like, I think it was close to two to 300 people in one week. I don't know if that's giftedness on my part or, uh, but I just remember, but after that, it was like what was needed is that I'm all for growth, but I want growth to be for the right reasons because people have a common vision, because God is saving the lost, because people are coming with an expectation that they're going to hear from Jesus, regardless of who's preaching or who's leading worship, that we're a community that together preaches the gospel, and that's what compels people to come. And it was way too much pressure on, on a single person, and I didn't have uh, the ability to play into that, nor did I want to. And I think that it's important for us to understand, for our church to be a healthy church, you have a responsibility to come with an expectation that it's not dependent upon how articulate Josh is or whoever the speaker is, but it's a belief that God's going to show up. He's going to speak to me if it's the driest sermon I ever heard, the longest sermon I ever heard, or the most exciting one. I just believe that God has something for me today. And I'm a part of this because I expect to receive from Christ that I might give myself away for him. And I think that that kind of attitude, when people come with an excitement, with an expectation that God actually wants to move, the one thing that we should cling to, and this is something that I called you guys to before a few weeks ago, I said, hey, you know, this is what happened to me in, in England. I had this incredible experience with the Holy Spirit. I've been a believer, a lover of Jesus for 18 years now. That's ne like that, it's never happened before. I love Jesus fully. And God gave me a taste of something crazy. It was a tangible taste of his presence. And I, and, and I haven't had that experience since it happened, but it created in me an expectation and a desire that God has the freedom to show up any way he wants to, to make himself known. And that's what I was calling you guys forward to. Because I know some of you came forward and you're like, and you're like that was super disappointing because nothing happened to me. I was like, remember, this man was sitting at the gate for years and years, and Jesus walked by him. And he could have said that, like, I know who Jesus is. He never healed me. He walked by me all the time. But the thing is, is Jesus was there to heal him now. And I think that the importance for us is expectation doesn't mean we get what we want when we want it. But we also need to submit to God's timing on things that we need to actually continue to believe because we shouldn't give that much attention to our doubt because all we need is enough faith the size of a mustard seed and we can call, tell the mountain to jump into the sea. It's not how much faith you have, it's the one whom, whom we believe. And do you believe that Jesus is, can do great things, wants to do great things? Without faith, it's impossible, to, it's impossible to please God. And I think that how often do we function more in, in, in unbelief and skepticism than we do in a calm confidence that Jesus really is here and wants to show up. 
because that expectation on both sides leads to the third need, which is the need for yieldedness. Now, this is the fascinating thing. It says, uh, when Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have to give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So this is a miraculous event, a miraculous healing. And I think that this is the question. There is a, a genuine concern for others that happens. There is definitely a, a, an, an expectancy that is occurring both on Peter's side as well as the, as, as the lame man. Although the lame man is expecting the wrong thing. He's expecting a, a gift of, of a monetary gift. Uh, and Peter's really honest with him. He's like, I actually don't have any money. Uh, he's like, but this I can give to you. Now, here's the, here's the thing. Peter himself uh, seems to have an absolute confidence that this man is going to be healed at this moment. And this raises questions about what we believe about around the theology of healing. And I think that there are some who come from more charismatic backgrounds that really, they, they want to see more signs and wonders occurring within the church. And I think that we should be open to God actually healing. But I think that it's also good for us to remember 1 Corinthians 12 when it says that the Spirit gives to some the gift of faith and to some the gift of healing. I think that he's giving at this moment to the man a gift of faith and he's giving at, uh, in Peter a gift of healing and a gift of faith. Uh, and it says, but it says in, the, uh, in verse 11 of, of 1 Corinthians 12, but it says, but it is the Spirit who gives according to his will. So the question is, is does the Spirit always, just because you make a command for him to heal someone, does he heal? And the answer is no. Paul himself was a man of great faith, and he prayed three times that God remove the thorn from his flesh. And what did God say with that answer? The thorn from his flesh was some sort of physical ailment. And, and he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Jesus is the ultimate in a picture of faith. Did God save him from the cross? No, he did not. In fact, the cross was the means by which salvation and life was made possible for all of us. I think that even if God heals us, you're still ultimately, that's a temporary reality. That's why the greater miracle is the restoration of right relationship. The greatest miracle is God's salvation of the soul the ability to bring one into a right relationship with himself. But does that mean that we shouldn't have an expectation for healing? Does it mean we shouldn't pray for healing? I prayed for healing for two friends that died of cancer. I've also prayed for healing for other people that experienced healing on a, on, on a less miraculous self way. And I myself experienced a pretty miraculous healing a few years ago. In fact, I'll, I'll share that with you. Um, so uh, when I was working on the, the Northeast building, I was just under tons of stress. I ended up with shingles. Uh, and I ended up uh, getting some really horrible sciatic pain where I would, I would like lay down before I preach because my back hurt so bad. And my doctor said, hey, you need to go get a CAT scan. So I went and got a CAT scan. And it came back that my, my, I had a nerve that was being pinched by two vertebrae. And he recommended that I get surgery. And I'm like, oh, that seems really major. Um, so I, I was afraid of surgery because I, I heard that the surgeries can actually make it worse. And so I... I I was like stressing about it and trying to figure out what to do. And I went into this, this store, City Liquidators, ever been there? 
and, and the owner, as uh, his son, um, Zach, who used to be a part of Door of Hope, he, he's, uh, he actually is no longer a part of Door of Hope, and he come, he's like leans into a much, much more charismatic world than what I'm personally comfortable with. Uh, and, and, and we're friends, and we talk about it, uh, and he's really big into healing um, ministry, and so and he's extremely outgoing about it. And I and and honestly, I even challenged him on like some of the teachers I feel like he's followed been extremely suspect uh, theologically and and practices that I don't. I'm like unless I can argue it from scripture, I just don't. I don't buy it generally. Uh, I just think that's a good rule of thumb. Uh, in, as a Christian, like this is why God's given us his word. However, I show up there and, I, and he goes, how are you doing, Josh? And he's really loving. And the one thing he is, is he's got just excitement, enthusiasm, and he believes God wants to show up at any moment. Like he's just, he's ready. And he's like, he's like, I just got back from Texas and I did this healing class and it's awesome. And I'm like, really? And he goes, how are you doing? And he's like, I'm like, well, I actually, I'm having this horrible sciatic pain and they're telling me I need to have surgery. And he goes, can I pray for you? And I'm like, oh man. And I'm in the store and it's midday and it was pretty busy. And I'm like, and I'm like, well, yeah, I need prayer, man. Let's, uh, sure, why not? And I thought he was going to take me into a back room. And instead he's like, he goes, great. Where's it hurting? And I'm like, right, right here. <laughs> and then, and then out of nowhere, I remember there were these two women standing just like a few feet from us. And he goes, in the name of Jesus, sciatica be gone. And then he hit me in the back, and I was like, ah. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I was like, well, I still need my sciatic. <laughs> what, what you, that's not even the proper thing to pray. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm like, the sciatic nerve is not the problem. You actually need a sciatic nerve. It's a pinch sciatic, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, and uh, he... He screamed at me, and I was so startled. And these, these women, they're like, I literally watched, and they were just like, just like trying to get down this other aisle. And I was like, please, Lord, just give me peace right now. I, and, and, then, and, and then he, like, he passed me on the back and said, like, how are you feeling? Walk around. Walk, straighten up. Walk around. I'm like, I'm like I, I don't know right now. I'm kind of, that was pretty crazy. <laughs> and, then, and then I'm like, I, you know, I think I feel better. That was because I was, I'm like, probably adrenaline, but it actually felt better. And I got in the car, and actually, I've never had any problems with it ever since. Now, I can't explain to you, uh, was his whole theological grid correct? Not really. Uh, there were things that he said that I disagreed with that I think were extra biblical, but he loves Jesus, and he believed that Jesus wanted to heal me. And, and I accepted that, and, and I came with, I'm like, Lord, I'm like, I don't even care if we're in agreement. Like, I need his faith for my healing right now because my back really hurts. And so, so I just found this, this conviction. And I think that there are times where the, 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 the key to understanding it and the reason that I have issue uh, with some of those theological practices within hyper-charismatic is it, is it becomes formulaic and it removes the sovereignty of the spirit because the spirit doesn't always heal. And I don't like it when it becomes an expectation to the point that if he doesn't heal you, it's because you don't have faith, or if he doesn't heal you, uh, you're, you're a less Christian, because that's just simply not biblical. And so we have to have a balanced belief. Is the spirit sovereign? Can he heal someone? Yes, he can. And there's no reason why we shouldn't believe that he's capable of healing today. And I think that, I, but at the same time, I think that we need to understand that that yieldedness, I believe that Peter was so yielded to the Spirit that the Spirit directed him, and he was obedient. 
And, that, and I think that's the real question for us as a church, is that there may be times where God puts a word for you to speak into someone's life or tells you to pray for someone that's sick. The, the thing is, we're not going to notice if we don't notice people around us. And we're not gonna, it's not going to happen if we're not expectant. But expectancy needs to be connected with a yieldedness to let the Spirit move freely. And I think that this is the final one, and this is really the safeguard against all bad theology, is it needs to be connected to a center. What we need desperately is a center. What it, how is it that the man is healed? How is it that he's healed? What does he say? But Peter said, I have no silver and gold to give, but what I do have to give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and his feet were made well. So here's the thing. He, he brings healing in the name of who? Jesus. The need for a center is that the healthiest way for a church to remain healthy is to always talk about Jesus, that there is power in the name of Jesus, that Jesus is the, is the name that actually creates discomfort. And I, I meet too many Christians that are, they recognize that the name of Jesus, it, there, there's so much power in that name, it makes us uncomfortable. And not only does it make those who are outside of the faith uncomfortable when you talk about Jesus, but you can feel it even if you have a boldness to talk about Jesus, that there's just something about the name of Christ. Before I came to faith, that was the whole thing that drew me to faith. I'm such a contrarian that I couldn't figure out why it was that every time I mentioned the name of Jesus, my friends and those that I would be, I'm like, hey, what do you think about this? And they would get so uncomfortable. And we could talk about, we could talk about any religious faith uh, or any lack of religious faith. But the moment I mentioned Jesus Christ, it was like, hey, man, whoa, you've gone too far. I'm like, I'm just asking you what you think. But it's because there's, why does it make people so uncomfortable? It's not because of the things that have been done in the name of Christianity. People will say, well, that's why some people are uncomfortable. No, there's a genuine discomfort. There's been lots of bad things done in the name of every world religion. That's not what makes people uncomfortable. What makes people uncomfortable is that there's power in the name. And what we need to understand is that we aren't talking about Christianity if we're not talking about Christ. And the gospel never needs to get old because it always breathes new life every time it's preached. And churches today are moving more and more into peripheral issues. Even here, Peter gives us an insight into the church. The church's primary role is not to be a bank. It's not, it's not, its primary focus is not social justice or taking care of the physical needs of those around, around us. Is that an aspect of the church? Absolutely, but that's not our center. Our center is the gospel. I think a, a, a powerful story that I have of this very reality was actually Luis Palau was sharing with me how he goes, I don't understand. He's like, all these missionary um, uh, organizations and churches today, they're so caught up in social justice stuff that they've, that they've, they've lost the sense of the, of the urgency in the gospel. We now send missionaries to foreign countries to teach them how to farm or dig wells for them. And, and, and he was being really, there was pretty sharp criticism but I'm like, when you're like one of the greatest evangelists in the world and have shared the gospel with like hundreds and millions of people, uh, and you yourself grew up in poverty and got radically saved as a young boy in a foreign country, I just kind of give him, like he can say whatever he wants. Uh, and, but his point was this, he goes, when I got saved, the missionaries that came to Argentina did not come with anything except the gospel. They weren't teaching us how to farm, they weren't teaching us how to have more profitable lives, what they said, we don't have anything to give you. We came, they came in poverty, they came in tattered clothes, and all they did was come in the name of Jesus to bring the gospel of freedom 
to a lost and broken people. And I think that this is, the, this is the center that we need because out of that center, then we actually can actually handle when we do have silver and gold, it's still functioning and we're utilizing it because of the name of Jesus. And I think that this is something, we used to be a church that had no silver and gold. Uh, and I remember in the early days, I'm like, do we have every single barista in Portland attending Door of Hope? There was like no money uh, coming in and it was, in, it was insane. But what we, had, what we lacked in financial resources, we made up for in vitality, in youth, in excitement, in enthusiasm, and it was enthusiasm around the person of Jesus. We can't mature past that, guys. Uh, our maturity should actually, in, uh, actually move us into even more childlike faith, even more wonder, uh, a wonder that's under the control of the Spirit and leads us into the needs of those around us. And the central need that people have is the, is the need for salvation. Physical miracles are, are beautiful when they happen. I'm grateful that my back was healed through the prayer of a faithful man. Uh, and, and, G, and Jesus is the one that healed me. And he healed me in spite of even bad theological grids. Uh, but that's, that's not the thing that I rejoice about on a daily basis. What I rejoice about is the greater miracle that God took a broken, sinful man who basically blatantly rejected the gospel for years and he drew me to himself and he said, I love you, give your life to me. And I was saved. I was saved. And that is the beauty of the gospel and no greater miracle is that. And I love the response to this healing. It says, he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Notice that the miracle uh, is actually what opened up the conversation because what follows actually is Peter giving his second sermon, another proclamation of the gospel, and he calls, he doesn't heal another person in their sight, but now he calls them to repent and put their faith in Jesus. And, and it is in this Jesus that this man has been made well. Jesus made the man well, and Peter utilizes, and what the miracle becomes is an authenticating miracle to the reality of the gospel, and it actually even goes further as we follow the trajectory of Acts. It is the miracle that led to the authentication of the gospel, which also brought about a persecution of the Christians in Jerusalem, which ultimately led to God utilizing sovereignly their persecution to actually disperse them into the world that the gospel might spread. God's ability to override every event to bring about the greatest possible good, which is to seek and save that which is lost. And I think that the power of this, this message is not that the man was healed, but that Jesus providentially, he waited. The man didn't, wasn't healed when Jesus was walking on the earth. He waited and became a vehicle by which now Jesus, it's almost like Jesus said, I did see you, sir. I do love you. I cared for you. I'm making my love known through my, through my vessel, the church. And this man now becomes a conduit for the gospel exploding around the known world. It's so powerful. And so I just ask you, church, are we a church that lives with a concern for others, that lives expectant, believes God wants to say something and do something in our midst and through us? Do we live with a yieldedness to the Spirit? And ultimately, are we centered on the cross of Christ? Because it's in the name of Jesus. The power, the, the heavenly component 
is that Jesus Christ supernaturally works through us, but that supernatural movement leads us to offer a hand. Peter gives him his physical hand. I always say that, that as Christians, we should become practical mystics, not those who hide ourselves away in the heavens uh, waiting for the mystical experience, but understand that the mystical experience happens when we actually begin to get our hands and feet dirty and move into the brokenness of the world and make ourselves available uh, to those around us who are in need. That's what I want for us as a church. Amen?